And when we had Norb Gambuza on, he was telling us that the working title was going to be Inside the Ropes, which is kind of the cliche line for mm-hmm. it. And we, you know, my recollection of this, Tim, was that we we both knew that it could be better. And I think that energy that we gave on that definitely pushed Norb and the team there at the tour and maybe... Wait, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking credit for the fact that it didn't stay inside the ropes, but you sort of are. And if and if, and if anyone was offended by the fact that I should have credit for that. Welcome to Wait. What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee, the podcast where we take a unique look at the business of sports, sometimes irreverent, often cynical, and on occasion even serious. I'm your co-host, David Paro. And I'm Tim McGee. This is our seventh episode already in 2023, our 56th overall. We're recording a little early in the week than we normally do because of some staff travel. Um, But we just wrapped one of the big sports marketing weekends of the year with the Daytona 500, still the real start of the NASCAR Cup season and the NBA All-Star Game, which has served as the backdrop for many a product launch over the years. Uh, And I'm sure we'll get around to those topics over the course of the show. But Tim, what's on your mind? Well, let's. there was no dearth of sports programming this weekend, despite the NFL being dark for the first time since late August. Um, But what I would say wasn't Quality does not equal quantity in this case. I, I do think the She Believes Cup match between the U.S. and Japan was a, was a great match. Congrats to the U.S. for winning 1-0. One, one they haven't let up a goal in this tournament, and they meet uh, Brazil on Wednesday. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but the NBA All-Star Game, my goodness. Unwatchable. Unwatchable. Like it, I, I understand not playing defense in in the NFL and the Pro Bowl. I I don't understand why you don't take some pride in in keeping your opponent from scoring 185 right. points. It, I have never seen an event of this magnitude, even Pro Bowls, I think. I'm not sure I've seen a Pro Bowl get get absolutely lambasted as much as this game did last night. Oh my God! It was, they, they were literally standing around while the other guys were going one on one. Now, some people may argue that's any night in the NBA, but but it was just ridiculous. It, it was just yeah. I, I couldn't watch it. Could not, and I tried. I really did. Yeah, I mean, I listen. The all of these events are just trying to do a lot of different things. Baseball being, you know, one obviously where they try to keep to tradition, and that's the most traditional of the All Star games, of course. Um, and you know, maybe it's. You know, they've just been jumping the shark and they continue to to jump the shark. Um, you know, oftentimes that Saturday night, the State Farm All-Star Saturday night is uh, is some better programming. But I think they've tinkered too much with that. And I, I, you know, I don't I, you know, obviously the players don't seem to want to come out for it. The skills challenge is a hodgepodge of things that I don't get. I don't get what the you know relation to the game really is. Um, what is now? And that's that's sponsored by Kia and the. Starry three-point contest, I don't think featured necessarily the best three-pointers, three-point shooters. Uh, although Damian Lillard can freaking shoot the basketball. And he won. <laughs> so he was a worthy winner of that. I thought that was good that he participated in it. Uh, and he won. And then the um, 
and that was a big coming out, of course, for for Starry, the the new soft drink from Pepsi that yeah. um, we talked about last week's show. And then the uh, uh, I'm sure warms your heart, the AT and T Slam Dunk, which did feature something interesting because this guy, honestly, I really hadn't heard of Mac McClung came on. Nobody had heard of him. Nobody. It was it. He was. I, I have to say, I think everybody in that in that arena was pretty amazed, and and I certainly was. So I did watch that. Oh, um, I, I'll I say, thought, but you know, I, you know, that was amazing. Yeah, I mean, John Morant's not participating. Um, a number of other you know classic dunkers just won't participate in this. But good on him um, uh, for being there uh, and making his debut on that stage and coming through. He's just came up from the G League team to to sign with the Sixers. He got a Puma deal, so things are looking up for young Mac McClung. Almost doubled his salary with that one night's work. Well, you know, they say a reason some of the guys don't want to participate is because they don't want to be upstaged by a guy like Max McClung. So here's my for my former colleagues at AT and T. If you're listening, here's my idea for next year's. Maybe two years from now, because I did. I do think he bought it another year of relevance. But two years hence, here's my idea. Turn it into a, a team competition. Three guys from the NBA, three guys from the G League, three college athletes utilizing NIL. And you can do any – and you have to do – you have to do solo dunks, you have to do two-player dunks, and you have to do some three-player dunk. That's my that's – my, There you uh, go. That's my idea. If I shouldn't have given it away for free on the air, but uh, but only slightly better than the NBA All Star Game was the first weekend of XFL football. There's a reason AJ McCarron is not on a NFL right. roster. Right. You know, as as people on this show, as as we've talked about, there will never be a shortage of of trying to do these leagues, and I I think that the mistake seems to me is that even though there are gimmicks added. It's always trying to play regular football to a certain degree, messing it up just enough, but not having enough of you know what might keep people interested in. I, I continue to believe that the the idea is more of a game, is more of a game for fan engagement than it is for you know just trying to have uh, uh, another showcase for for the Rock. But we'll Big see. I mean, we'll see. They got they got a reasonable crowd there. We'll see if that can maintain. Well, uh, they they had a reasonable crowd in San Antonio. I don't know if they necessarily had right. a reasonable crowd on Saturday, where the game was. Keep me honest here. Where was that? Was that in? Because um, I I turned it on both days, and I, I'm sorry, I forget where that game was on Saturday. But um, the crowd was wasn't as big as it was in San Antonio, and you can almost understand that, right? They don't have a professional football team in San Antonio. San Antonio. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've seen some people go, well, some of these guys are going to make NFL rosters. And that very well could be true. But you know who else? You know who else makes NFL rosters? NFL players on NFL teams. <laughs> so I'll watch NFL football, right? Yeah. You want to, Rock needs another outlet. Like I said before, yeah. make Skyscraper too. Yeah. Listen, the, the show, Overall wasn't bad. I mean, they have they have serious broadcast partners. They have actual sponsors. Um, you know, the celebrity factor seems to be real. Um, they have coaches of some, you know, um, reputation. But you're right. The football, the football's not listen, if the it's a development league for the for the NFL. The one thing that makes this possible to stick around, maybe more than the USFL. Unless the USFL comes out and is actually really, really good football, but I don't suspect it'll be great football, is that 
is that the XFL has this connection with the NFL to try new things. That could be its savior and its lifeline. But I still think they, if they're going to be as experimental as they were with things like kickoffs, and it's just, just, just make it a fan engagement game, not necessarily gambling, but a fan engagement game. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, we'll see. We will yeah. see. That's and listen, I don't believe the USFL has a long-term play, but I will give them credit for this. They are the first football team in over 40 years to uh, last a second season, right? Going back to their predecessor in the, in the mid eighties. Um, so, so kudos to them for that. But what about, what about the uh, Genesis? So, event? so one event that, that, not only looked really good on TV, but I think spoke certainly volumes to the moves that the PGA Tour has made in taking some of these events and stepping them up in terms of prize money and that the players are supposed to play. The Genesis Invitational uh, in LA at Riviera was absolutely, I mean, it looked like the Tour Championship. The leaderboard was unbelievable. It comes down to this super hot Max Homa, who's like become my favorite player, by the way, and John Rahm, who I think is now world number one. He is. Uh, in a in an absolutely great event that looked like either the tour championship or a major uh coming down 18. I mean, it was electric. Um, and I so I so I think the momentum that a couple of these events early on the season for the PGA tour have had, and then and then juxtapose that against live, and they've had some things go against them. They've signed a couple new players that that aren't necessarily household names, to say the least. And they also have some issues with uh, with the legal matters that are going on, um, where they they now the courts have asked or or, or told uh, the public investment fund that backs this uh, out of the the Saudi sovereign wealth fund that they're going to have to you know turn over uh, information about their role in uh, running this, and that doesn't necessarily bode well. Um, I think for some of the some of the legal matters, it, it'll be appealed, and and they might have a case. Uh, since they are just funders and not necessarily the operators, um, or that's how they they what they're saying. So, if you look at through two months of the year, I would say things are looking pretty up for the PGA Tour, certainly versus Live. And then you had Tiger actually have a really good round as well, um, and uh, you know show some decent golf, which of course always helps everything. By the way, that's his tournament that he hosts. One of the few that he has not won. Yeah, it's a, you know a couple of things I would say. Number one, uh, they they say that it's not it's not his swing, it's the ability to walk eighteen holes four days in a row that is holding Tiger back right now. Um, so he is gonna he said he's gonna play the four majors and select other yeah. tournaments. But um, and you could argue that you know Live Golf sort of forced the PGA Tour into making some of these changes to the uh to the schedule and to the prize yep. money and to the format and stuff like that and that you know listen I, I would not disagree with that but the fact of the matter is that the pga tour has made those changes is making those changes and makes these events more fun to watch so good on yeah, that. i agree um tiger did do something pretty stupid that he that he um did one of these I think horrible apologies. Like if you're going to apologize, just apologize. Right. And for those of you that don't know the story, he, had, but to the point that tiger is crushing the ball again, I mean, he's hitting the ball, you know, three, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and he was hitting past Justin Thomas, who of course is a much younger player. 
and he did something really silly in terms of handing something off to him that uh, that that got caught and and you know a lot of people came out and it, it you know listen I, I I'm not going to say I was necessarily personally bent out of shape about it but I was a little surprised at how simple that apology could have been and and he just didn't make it he made the if I offended rather than just saying okay that was stupid I just don't get yeah. why that's so hard sometimes when you. <laughs> It's two things you never say in an apology. One is if I offended, because that puts the onus on the person or people who were offended, right? Number one. And you never say but, because anything that comes after the but negates what came before it. Um, yeah, if he wanted to make a joke at Justin Thomas's expense, maybe he could have, you know, had his coyote, you know, pull out a, a, a kid's club or something like mm -hmm. that. Right. Cause, cause the idea was he was making fun of Justin Thomas's ability to hit the ball as far as he could. And he did, he did it in a sexist and misogynistic way, period. End of story. So. I do want to say something about uh, else about golf. And you mentioned it in terms of the idea that you gave uh, AT&T mm -hmm. uh, is that, I binge watched a little bit of Full Swing, which is the new uh, docu series on Netflix. That mm -hmm. is really Netflix's model for sports is these unbelievable productions. And in this one, again, the same people that did Drive to Survive, box to box films. I'm telling you, it's really good. I, I watched, I think, four or five episodes, and two of them were just absolutely outstanding, including one on Brooks Kepka, the second episode, just absolutely fantastic. And when we had Norb Gambuza on, he was telling us that the working title was going to be Inside the Ropes, which is kind of the cliche line for mm -hmm. it. And we, you know, my recollection of this, Tim, was that we we both knew that it could be better. And I think that energy that we gave on that definitely pushed Norb and the team there at the tour and maybe... Wait, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking credit for the fact that it didn't stay Inside the Ropes. <laughs> But you sort of are. And if and if, and if anyone was offended by the fact that I <laughs> should have credit for that. No, but I'm I'm just saying it was fun to talk about that and see this project come out. And it's really good. My goodness, these guys know how to make interesting um series like this. It's it's I mean, Drive to Survive is is really good, and there's no doubt it is absolutely like fan this incredible flame of interest in in Formula One. I don't know if it'll do the same for the tour, but it gives you absolutely a completely different look at at the life of these guys than you get watching a regular tour event. And I had said I was going to watch the uh, Breakpoint on tennis. I haven't started that yet, but I will because um, I think they had a great year to start that series uh, for the you know, twenty twenty two. Uh, um, tennis tour series, men and women was absolutely fascinating with everything going on. So I can't wait to catch that one as well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, uh, it's really interesting business strategy by Netflix. They have said publicly in the past that they are not going to get into bidding wars for live, um, you know, streaming rights for major sports. And they are going all in on these, on these documentary series that have proven to be not only to your point, really well, uh, produced and and just highly uh, highly entertaining, but also incredibly popular. Um, and so, if I'm pickleball, if I'm you know another 
another professional sport, I'm lining up saying, hey, do me next, you know? Yes. Uh, I think this is a first. I think this is the first time that you were the first person on an episode to mention pickleball. And I just want to note that. So you don't always have to shake every time I bring it up. You don't always have to roll your eyes and shake your head, although I would expect that you will. Um, and I, I enjoy that a little bit too. <laughs> I agree with you. I think the strategy is so, and it just it just gives them further, um, I think, motivation to continue on with that strategy. Why, why chase it? They have a reason for people to come to them for sports. It's an absolute differentiator. Uh, and you're right. Who wouldn't necessarily go? Now, I think box to box has a, you know, I mean, they can they can pick what they want to do, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to be working with them right now? So, um, yeah, just a really interesting. I, I certainly encourage anyone that even has a passing interest in golf or wants to know a little more about it, um, check it out. Uh, I think it's worth it. And, and I certainly um, encourage anybody to uh, to watch Drive to Survive. Season five launches this Thursday, the 24th. Um, and, uh, I think it's going to be a pretty, uh, pretty amazing, another amazing season of that show as well. I think it might be time to take a break here. Um, we yeah. have a, we have a guest coming up that we're excited to talk to and, uh, second guest in a series that we're starting, uh, on this show. We'll be, uh, we'll be right back. It's time for our guest. So we're back and we're welcoming, um, our second young entrepreneur in an ongoing series that we have here on Wait What. Brendan Candon is the founder and CEO of Sideline Swap. It is an online platform uh, that allows sports uh, enthusiasts, athletes, former athletes, aspiring athletes to buy and sell sporting goods and sporting equipment um, simply and seamlessly. Um, in the interest of full disclosure, I am an investor in Sideline Swap and was a consultant to them in their infancy. Um, but as uh, as we like to say now, they're all grows up. So, Brendan, welcome to the show. Tim, thanks for having me. David, appreciate it. So I, I remember several years ago getting a, an email from you through the lacrosse community um, asking if I'd be willing to speak. And and uh, one of the smartest decisions in my professional life was to say yes and and uh, see uh, sideline swap from very early in its uh, in, in its growth. And so, why don't you tell our listeners how you came up with the concept for sideline swap? Yeah, uh, so we started sideline swap out of a kind of a personal pain point. I grew up uh, playing a little bit of everything. I'm one of five, I'm the oldest. So we always had a garage full of sports equipment. Uh, we, we shopped at Play It Again Sports, a, a franchise of used sporting goods stores growing up. Uh, and I think we were always buying and selling with friends. So it was kind of natural uh, for us to be using secondhand gear, whether it was hand-me-downs or stuff we bought used. Uh, and then play, you know, was lucky to play division one lacrosse where you got a lot of equipment for free. Uh, and then I shortly after graduation had to buy some new equipment and kind of had forgotten how expensive it was to buy a full set of lacrosse gear uh, and then didn't feel like or didn't have the money to spend $500 on, on new equipment. And so I ended up buying some equipment off a friend of mine, uh, Anthony Piazza, who ended up being my co-founder. Uh, Anthony was playing at Bucknell at the time. And we bought some equipment off him. And the two of us started talking about how we were surprised no one had made it easier for athletes to buy and sell equipment online. Uh, this is like 2012. So at the time, 
eBay and Craigslist were really still the primary ways to buy and sell. Uh, but there was the beginning of this verticalization of eBay and Craigslist, where there were uh, specific marketplaces being built for each category. So Poshmark and fashion, StockX and sneakers, Reverb and music equipment. Uh, you know, 10 years later, there's a lot of examples, but we were seeing that trend start and we felt like there was an opportunity to build something in sports. Sports is the fifth largest category on eBay. Uh, it's a multi-billion dollar used market and felt like there was an opportunity to make the experience better, that uh, eBay and Craigslist really weren't solving the problem and that by going deeper and building a better customer experience uh, in a specific category, that there's an opportunity to build a pretty big business. I think a lot of that obviously came together over time. At the, in the beginning, it was really simple. It was, well, we need used equipment and the experience online isn't that good. We, let's try that. That's a cool business idea. And, and that's really where we got started. Uh, and we learned a ton along the way. That's great. I mean, so many great ideas uh, in all walks of life come from you know, finding a, a personal pain point and, uh, and, and acting upon it. So congrats on that. I do also want to point out that I have to think besides Wake Forest, which is where I went to school and Cornell, which is where, of course, Tim went to school, that Bucknell might be the might be the most named university on this show. Then <laughs> I can't think it just seems to lot, come up a then. lot. <laughs> Not the least of which my my brothers and sister went to Bucknell as well. But I uh, anyway. yeah, so two of my co-founders are Bucknell alums. I'm right. Holy Cross alum. So yeah, yeah, the good the good thing about that is is I can always get my family to listen to an episode when there's Bucknell talk <laughs> on. So I'm happy about that. Dive in a little deeper, though, for us on the on the platform. What makes it special? What makes it stand out? What is it about both the buying experience and the selling experience uh, that you think has, um, you know, has kind of led you to this this early success um, and interest uh, from a number of companies? Yeah. So for us, it it really started on the supply side. Right. So in a marketplace, you have to build supply and demand and so you have to think about what are you doing for sellers and what are you doing for buyers? And, uh, and so in our case, we felt like there actually wasn't that much used inventory on eBay or on Craigslist or let's just focus on eBay. There, there wasn't as much as you'd think. eBay had really shifted its experience to focus on professional sellers to compete with Amazon. So you had, uh, it, yeah, if you went on and even if you tried today, it's, it's actually harder than you might expect to start selling. So for our, our focus was to simplify the experience for the individual athlete. We try to remove as much friction as possible by making the listing experience from the first step as, as intuitive as possible. We guide you through to collect all the information that you need to list your item. Uh, and that gets pretty specific to each category. So if you're listing hockey skates, we wanna, we're going to ask you for the size, the width of the skate. Um, and you know, there's other details like uh, pro stock that will, will, and where, where are the skates made that buyers care about. And all that influences the price. We give you pricing guidance. We give you shipping labels once you've shipped your item. And we provide a messaging platform that makes it really easy for buyers and sellers to communicate. So all those things, I think, what we started to see was that we were more than half the people who sold on Sideline had never sold online before. And nearly all of our inventory you know, in the beginning was unique to Sideline Swap. It wasn't just taking supply from eBay over to uh, from supply from eBay over to sideline. It was unlocking inventory that otherwise would have sat in people's garages or closets. And so that was the beginning for us of removing friction and, and capturing the right information and doing things like messaging, payments, and shipping. Uh, and then on the buy side, 
we wanted to build the best shopping experience in sports. So if you shop for hockey skates on eBay, you, um, you actually can't like filter by size, which obviously is the most important criteria. So you, it's all unstructured data. So we capture the right information from sellers when they list product, which allows us to make it a really clean experience when you're shopping. And so that's the way people, customers in this space want to shop. It allows you to find the exact right product that you're looking for at usually up to 70% off retail because it's used. Uh, and then we provide a buyer guarantee where we hold the funds until the payment, the product's delivered to the buyer. And then the funds are released to the seller once the product's delivered. So there's a lot of um, things that we do to secure and create a st streamlined experience. And I think that's why we've been at this point, we've, we last year we passed $100 million in all-time sales. Um, and, and we have, you know, tens or I guess hundreds of thousands of sellers on the platform ranging from 13 years old up till, you know, people running a, a business uh, selling through the platform. So kind of can accommodate all ranges and, and buyers of all types as well. That's fantastic. The, the, the amount of growth you guys have undergone is phenomenal. And I, I, I watch it with, with great admiration and respect. Uh, I remember early on um, your dad said something to the effect of he would rather you spend your time, money and effort in the startup than paying for it an MBA. Um, so tell us, what are, what are some lessons that you learned uh, as an entrepreneur um, that, uh, that you've carried through to this day? Maybe things that you might not have learned had you taken the more traditional route of going back and getting an MBA. Yeah. So uh, I think I'd started sideline. I was a couple of years out of school. I'd spent the first few years working in insurance, running, managing uh, a small sales team. But was thinking about what to do next and sideline was kind of just getting going but didn't have a ton of momentum yet and i think that's probably when that conversation happened uh but i feel like you know the there's no better learning experience than starting a company uh you know a lot of times through failure uh but you you kind of fail upwards and and have really gotten a chance to learn so every aspect of business along the way uh and i think you know, my dad encouraged that as a entrepreneur and small business owner. Uh, you know, that was something I'm sure he, he he knew. And so, over the last ten years or so, as we've built Sideline, and really the last eight years of going of full time on it, you know, I've got to experience everything from building a technology product and working with engineers to uh, you know, how do you get your first customers, and then how do you get your you know, how do you get millions of customers? And so, there's the marketing side of it. There's the team building of hiring executives and hiring and, and building and, and managing a team. Uh, there's obviously the finance elements and fundraising. So, uh, you know, I think when I think about the entrepreneurial journey, it's it's the steepest. If you're lucky, it's an extremely steep learning curve because the environment or environment around you is constantly changing where uh, you have a new challenge, not only every every day, but also really every six months, the job's changing. And, and so your, your skill set has to constantly evolve. And, you know, I think there are, you know, friends who are in, in good jobs, but it's kind of the same thing year to year. And in this, in my case, it's, it's been more of a, a linear path where it's changing. It's a straight line, like everything, the, the, what, what my job is, is day to day is actually changing constantly. And that's the, that's the most fun part of it. I mean, in terms of like some specific lessons, I was, I was thinking a little bit about this coming into today. And, and I think, you know, there's so many, right? Like I could go kind of into any one of those that we talked about, but the last two years or so during COVID have been especially 
interesting and a kind of totally new challenge for us. A lot of sports were canceled for the beginning of COVID. And we kind of, we actually had a strategic investor pull a deal uh, in early March, 2020. And so we went into COVID with almost, with, with less than 50 days of cash. And so we went, went through this like major, major crisis where we had to slam on the brakes and, and right size the business and get our, our costs under control in order to survive. And I think we're coming out of it, we're actually a much stronger business. We're leaner. The team, the talent density on the team's never been higher. We were able to keep the core people and continue building and identify new opportunities. But I think the last couple of years has really reinforced the idea that making the hard decisions faster, like there's just no, I think that that's been my main takeaway from it. Of a lot of things that we probably knew we could do or should do, like when the guns to your head, there's there's no time to 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 slow down and deliberate and, and think about those decisions. And it, it kind of crystallized a lot of things and made us make really hard decisions really fast. And I think we became a much better better business faster as a result. So I think it's been an interesting learning over the last year or two. So the next question I'm going to ask is caveated with this idea that I understand and we understand that things like age are completely relative. Um, so when I say you're a young entrepreneur, we say you're a young entrepreneur. Um, it's <laughs> from our standpoint, it's with like complete respect and admiration, by the way. Um, but I do want to know how has, how has your age of coming into business helped you in some regards, and what have been the challenges of, of that when you're seeking business partners, when you're looking for investment, uh, and and all those other things that you have to do as an as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think I, when I started Sideline, I felt more I definitely like a young entrepreneur. Ten plus years in feels a little different, but uh, you know, I think the when in some ways, like the first thing thinking about that is that we were extremely naive, and I think that worked in our favor. We didn't know how hard it was going to be. And so we just jumped in and we're, we're excited about it. And the opportunity costs were low, right? I, I hadn't gotten far enough in a different career path where, you know, I was trading off, uh, you know, a great salary. I, I felt like if I, it was the right time, it was, I was able to take on these huge risks and, uh, and, and start early with, you know, if I failed, I felt like I could recover. Um, and I didn't have a lot of responsibility to, to weigh on me while I was trying to figure that out. Um, I think, so in some ways, those are the positives. I think on the other side, we didn't have strong resumes and we didn't have a lot of experience in the beginning. So we uh, didn't know, we had never built a tech company. We had never worked in tech. We had never worked in a venture-backed startup. So, you know, that email I sent to Tim was, a, was a kind of a, during a period of sending a lot of emails to a lot of people who I thought could help. And it was just trying to, we call it maximize your luck surface area, right? Get, get in front of as many people as possible uh, and tell them what you're working on and, and learn and, and network and they'll put you in touch with two or three more people. And, and so, um, you know, there, there was a lot to overcome. We had to learn how to, you know, how to raise money, how to, how to build tech. So I think, you know, if I had spent a few years and gone and worked at a tech company initially, I probably would have learned a lot that I could have carried into my business but I had to learn a lot of that on the fly. Uh, and then in terms of recruiting and building, you know, building business, I think it, we had to prove ourselves in the first couple of years that we were legit, the business was legit. Um, and so we kind of had, we didn't have, you know, logos on the resume to point to and a track record to point to. 
So we had to, it probably took us a little bit longer while we proved it out with our actions over the first couple of years. Uh, but I think over time, continued to deliver on what we said we were going to deliver on, found a way to make it happen. And, uh, and I think we, we you know, got a little bit easier as we went along. Um, and I think like the, in terms of team and recruiting executives, it's, uh, it's just, it comes down to, I think, being able to communicate a clear vision, even if we were inexperienced, we knew what we were trying to build. And I think the, we were able to attract some really good talent, uh, with that vision. And, uh, and I think if you can, if you can do that, well, it allows for, you know, a, a a lot more room for error as you're trying to figure some of the other stuff out. Okay. So fast forward to last year, you get a strategic investment from Dick Sporting Goods, which has done phenomenally well over the last five to 10 years. Um, in addition to the financial investment that they've made in Sideline Swap, um, what else have they brought to the table that have helped you um, in your growth plans? Yeah, so the partnership with Dick's really came out of this idea that there's still so much inventory and sports gear in people's homes, right? In garages that we're, we're just scratching the surface of getting that inventory online. And that as the market leader in sports, there's, you know, Dix has a ton of influence with those consumers. The inventory is really going from their stores into a garage. And then where does it go next? And, and so where we approached Dix probably in 2020, 2021 was with this idea of more and more brands and retailers are leaning in on the circular economy. Uh, and that they're thinking about how can they offer these services to customers who are looking for ways to give their inventory, their, the stuff they bought a second life. And so we saw this like great win-win partnership where we can work with the exporting goods to uh, run what we call pop right now. It's trade in events. So you can go last weekend. We had 10 events running with Dick's where you could go into the stores that we're at, bring in your old sports equipment. We evaluate it through our value guide based on the sideline swap market data. And then we pay customers on the spot in a Dick's gift card. So if you bring in, you know, a, a, a couple baseball bats, the average payout is close to $100. So you're getting $100 that we give you in a Dick's gift card that you could then go spend on your next sports purchase. And we take that inventory and we resell it for you on sideline swap. Uh, and the, then obviously that gets a second life and someone else gets to find some u- high quality used gear at a discount. So for it's a win for customers who are getting rid of their stuff. It's a win for customers who are buying used. It's a win for dicks who's seeing significant lift on spend in store, right? So you, if we give out $100, they're usually spending closer to 200 in that purchase. So it's a, you know, the, the incrementality of the, the gift card is a, is a big win for dicks. And obviously it's great brand awareness for us. We're acquiring all these customers, we're getting all this inventory. So on the surface, I think you could look at us and Dick's and decide is the secondhand market eating into the first, you know, the, the primary market and are these competitors. But I think we both view the world in a similar way where there's, there's plenty of opportunity out there and that the circular economy is something that consumers want and that we can work together to bring this great solution to them in a way that drives more business for them and a way that drives more business for us. It, it's a tremendous way to perpetuate the ecosystem of the, of the sporting goods. And, and so, you, and I don't think you could liken it to the, you know, primary and secondary ticket, uh, which doesn't seem to take the customer in mind as much. This seems to do that. It's um, more like the used car market, right? right? Where there's really two different customers. People buy used cars or new cars. 
And really the used car market helps grow a bigger primary market because you could turn in your old car and go buy a new one. Um, and that's been proven across categories. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's definitely uh, something that we think overall helps, helps grow the pie. And, and obviously Dix is the, cares a lot about participation in sports and they have the sports matter foundation. And, and so this is very much in line with their goals of accessibility and affordability of growing sports. Yeah. Their areas of focus and what they seem to think is important. I've just always been very impressed with. So happy that, that you're doing business with them. Hey, listen, I, I guess a quick step back, tell us about the origin of the name who came up with it. I think it's beautifully simple, uh, you know, um, nicely alliterative, um, but it says exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where you're on like GoDaddy buying a, like, you're like, all right, I'm going to start a business. We need a URL. And you're just like typing in combinations of words and landed on sideline swap. Probably took like two hours of sitting there seeing what was available that cost $9.99 for the year instead of like, you know, having to pay someone thousands of dollars for a name. Thousands. And, you, th- you should uh, think about these branding yeah. companies that, <laughs> that take all kinds of money. Yeah. you write your. If I could go down to two syllables, I would. It's a little long, but other than that, uh, uh, you know, we've it's uh, it's fun, and we've, we've had a obviously we we love the name. You're gonna have to come up with a better apocryphal tale once you uh, when you write your autobiography at the end of your career. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll work on that. <laughs> so where where do you see the opportunities for growth for Sideline, and what are what are some of the things you're going to need to get to that that next level, if you will? Yeah, and we're excited. We we think obviously talked a little bit about the challenges of COVID and you know decreased sports participation and some of our core sports like hockey and lacrosse and baseball for a period during 2020-2021. We grew through that, but it was it was challenging. And I think we're we're feel we're really excited for a lot of reasons. I think the circular economy and re-commerce is clear, I think a, a major trend in retail right now and something that when we started in 2012 to 2015, it wasn't obvious. There was a lot of questions of, do people really want to buy used sporting goods? And especially online. I think like that's not really a question we get anymore. And if you look at the adoption of secondhand, it's the, it, it, it's just off the charts. Uh, and so we're excited about being able to not just benefit from that from a marketplace perspective, but to also uh, work with retail partners and brands to enable re-commerce in the circular economy and sports for them. Uh, so we, we expect continued growth from the marketplace. We're always expanding our, our inventory and our, our um, category offerings. So uh, there's a lot there. And then on the trade in, so- trade in business, there, there's a lot that we're doing there with the, with the exporting goods and some of our other retail partners. And that'll be a, a big focus for us over the next few years. We, we did 70 trade-in events last year. Uh, we did two the year before. So we went from two to 70. And this year uh, we're shooting for 700 with our retail partners. So major growth uh, in terms of the pop-up trade-in event. I think some other things that we're working on is that pretty soon you'll be able to walk into some of our retail partners and there'll be an always-on trade-in solution where in certain product lines, you'll always be able to trade in your uh, sports, whether we're there or not for an event. Uh, and that will be enabled by Sideline Swaps technology. Um, and then there's some other other things that we're working on too on the re-commerce side of ways that we can support our retail partners to help them move inventory 
uh, at the end of its life, whether it's clearance or returns. So lots of lots of things that we're looking at. Uh, but I think we've always believed that the opportunity to build a, a made like a, a very large marketplace in secondhand sports was there. Uh, and now with some of this new momentum, we think we're, we're excited to just kind of run with it for a little while uh, and take advantage of all the work that we've done to put ourselves in this position. Brendan, listen, I think your, your story is great. It's been an absolute pleasure to learn more about it and, you know, where you came from and, and where you're headed. Um, we are at that at that time of the show where we like to ask um, some closing questions. We're not going to talk to you about how you got your start, because as you've, we've gone along, you've pretty much given us your background. But we do have a very important question that we'd like to close with you on, um, if you're so willing. And that is, what's one piece of advice, if you had to come up with one, that you would give a young entrepreneur looking to, you know, basically do what what you did? I think it, it really is about being comfortable being uncomfortable, right? Like kind of embracing the growth mindset uh, and, and, and just realizing that all that discomfort is growth, right? That like, it's okay. You're just going to need to figure it out as you go. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Whether it's listening to podcasts like this, whether it's reading books, whether it's sending cold emails to people like Tim, like there's a lot of different ways to, to, just increase your knowledge to, to be able to go execute on what you need to do. But I think it's like having that, um, you know, default to, to action of, of just what do you do next? How do you, how do you solve the next problem in front of you and just keep going? Uh, and I think that starts with putting pen to paper in the beginning. When I talk to people who are just starting out, plenty of people have ideas, right? So it's like, what did you, what have you done? And, and that could look different depending on your skill set. but there's really no excuse at this point not to have a prototype of what you're trying to do or a business plan for what you're doing. You know, that's kind of where we started and it allowed us to communicate the vision um, to people of what we're trying to build. So I think, uh, you know, just get, getting started and then continuing to, to embrace, you know, what you don't know and, and just trying to gain, you know, do whatever it takes in terms of uh, networking or, or learn, uh, constantly learning in order to develop your skill set to, to be, the best at whatever you need to be the best at, at that point in time. And, uh, and that's constantly changing and it never, it has not stopped. And, and that's been the, like I said, I think that's been the most fun part of what we've been doing at the same time. It's been the hardest. So you just got to kind of embrace the two of those. Great advice. Um, Brendan can't thank you enough for taking time. I know how busy you are. I know you're preparing to move. So good luck with that. We, uh, we're really excited to watch your continued growth and success. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, David. I really enjoyed being on. Appreciate it. Yeah, great meeting you. And definitely keep telling people to listen to this podcast. That's 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 good advice as well. (laughs) (laughs) We got that down. Uh, (laughs) Take care. Thank you again to Brendan Candon co-founder and CEO of Sideline Swap. Check them out for sure, www.sidelineswap.com. This is the time in the show where we take a look forward. David, what's going on? Well, I'm I'm excited about the next week and a half because I'm going to a region that I've not been. I am traveling to the Middle East. Um, There's two weeks, weekends in a row of uh, F1 activity in Bahrain. Uh, where testing will take place this coming weekend and then the official start to the 2023 
Formula One World Championship Series will uh, will begin. And um, so I'm I'm excited about that. It's you know it's going to be a long way away with the you know in nine hours difference from from where I live, but excited about it. I think it's always it's always fascinating to go to new places um, and meet new people from different areas. And, uh, I'm, I'm super excited about it. So, um, uh, you know, wish me luck on, uh, uh, on all that. Um, but I also, I wanted to do a shout out only because the memories of, of this person are, are still somewhat vivid in me. And that's to Tim McCarver, who is, who passed away recently and amazed to, to look back and see that he had called 23 world series uh, in, over the course of his life as a broadcaster, which he's a Hall of Fame broadcaster. But there was another reason that he just stood out to me in my memories of him. And and, and in 1972, when I had become a big Phillies fan, because I had moved to Philadelphia area, and the Phillies were horrible. Um, they won 59 games in 1972. And 27 of those were won by lefty Steve Carlton. And... Tim McCarver was not the starting catcher on that team, but he caught for Steve Carlton's games. And that to me just always kind of stood out as a, such a cool accomplishment. Anyway, um, shout out to Tim McCarver and, uh, uh, on a, on a career as a, as a player and a, and a, and a broadcaster that's, um, not many other people, um, could match. Well, first of all, I want to say, uh, safe travels and productive travels. Uh, over the over the coming weeks, I hope you guys have a great start to the F1 season. Um, I'm going to be looking forward to a couple things, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show. We're we're recording this earlier than we typically do, so I want to see the uh, the ratings for both the Daytona 500 and XFL and the NBA All Star Game for that matter. Um, and we were talking earlier about in, uh, Netflix and their um, their business strategy for for um, bidding on broadcast rights read recently that nbc is uh thinking about bidding for the upcoming nba mm-hmm. rights and uh they lost it's it's hard to believe but they lost those rights 20 years ago to turner uh but much of the 90s right you talk about um you know the 80s being the decade of magic and, and bird and 90s being the the decade of of michael jordan um but a lot of a lot of the growth during that time was the great partnership between the NBA and and NBC. Yeah, the image so the images of Dick Ebersole sitting next to David Stern at NBA Finals games was is just something that I'll I'll always remember, right? Yeah. So, um, but now we have to say goodbye. So uh, thank you again to Brendan. Thank you, David, as always, and thank you to you listeners. Um, you're what makes this show what it is. So please uh, like us, follow us, send us feedback. And until next week, he's DP. I'm McGee, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>